All right, we are uh, one step closer to finding uh, my bucket list guest of any Vincent today. Uh, he's just a hard man to track down, and uh, it's been a wacky 24 hours in my life. Uh, the comedy store last night, I uh, something bad happened I didn't need to see, and uh, this is about the only thing that could take my mind off that, because I've had my favorite singer on my couch, Stephen Piercy. Uh, and I now have uh, my favorite drummer on the couch, and that's no BS. Uh, so it's it's about the only thing that can make me feel better right now. Inappropriate Earl, you know him, you love him. I talk about this man, all the bands he's been in. Please put your hands together for the one, the only, Mr. Bobby Rock. All right, all right. Thanks for having me. No, I know this probably wasn't on your bucket list of things to do. But uh, it's a, I'm, I'm not speechless often, Mr. Rock, but I was rejuvenated after reading your blog about the recording process, or the audition process for uh, your time in the Vinnie Vincent invasion, and uh, I was like, I want to get him on. I have to get this man on, and, and you've done a lot more than just the Vinnie Vincent invasion. I mean, there's uh, Nitro, which right. uh, a lot of, I saw... Michelangelo play a national anthem I'll never forget at a Kings game. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Nelson. Now you're in Lita Ford. Uh, Carnival of Souls. Not very good. Well, I've done my research. Yes. <laughs> I don't plan one question, Mr. Rock. So if this uh, interview is probably uh, the most scattered interview you'll ever do because we jump all over the map here. But uh, like we were talking just now off the air, uh, I guess what first brought you to prominence in most music fans' uh, minds is uh, your time in the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Sure. And uh, what what do you think it is about that band and Vinnie in particular that just people 30 years later want to know about him? Well, I think a lot of it is the fact that he just vanished, you know? He, he's one of the, the, the rare... Uh, rock guys we know who just disappeared and we've been able to keep up with like anybody who was really big back then any of the, our you know beloved rock and roll icons you know you can kind of follow the trajectory of their career even since then this guy just disappeared so that that's always uh lends the mystique to you know to the question of, of what the hell ever happened to him so i think that that's a that's a big part of it you know and you are one of the few people who can I guess somewhat attempt to get inside of his mind and uh, and give people like me who's you know I'm just a fan even though like I told you I did order the box set and uh all I got out of it was a very nice box <laughs> um and so it's just like when you were uh I mean you did an amazing blog recently about uh how you joined the band uh was there any indication back then of uh this guy's a little off a of center not really, you know. I mean, I guess in retrospect, there's some, you know, some behavioral things that made him a, a unique character. I think he's uh, widely and largely misunderstood. Uh, and a lot of that's because he hasn't been around to defend himself or to, to counteract people's presumptions about him or comments about him through the years. And so there's a couple things as I look back that, that were like, hey, that, you know, that's, that's maybe this kind of a behavioral thing or whatever. But besides that, he was actually... Pretty, pretty straight ahead, pretty level-headed type guy, man. Honestly, we always got along well, and um, you know, people like to say, you know, the, the, the big, oh, what an asshole, you know, this kind of thing. You'll hear a lot, but really, he was—he's was pretty even-tempered. He, uh, 
I, I never really saw him fly off the handle. He never raised his voice at me with all the conflicts we had <laughs> for, the, right. for the three years we were together. Um, so it, it, so this thing about him just kind of disappearing is, is something I don't think any of us would have seen coming. Because his musical background, it, even if you just toss out all the wacky stories and, and just uh, writing jingles for Happy Days, which I don't think people would associate many people from the 80s sure. doing and uh, playing in the Dan Hartman band. Man, you know, when sometimes people say, what is it about Vinny that a lot of people don't know or would be surprised to know? Uh, I don't think people realize how great of a guitar player he actually was above and beyond all the shred fest kind of thing that he was doing in his own band, you know? He was an extremely diverse player. Uh, he played all different kinds of music. Just listen to him fuck around at rehearsal. You know, he could, you could hear him play like some Jeff Beck bluesy type stuff. I heard him play, you know, a chordal jazz kind of stuff. He could do that Chet Atkins finger picking, chicken picking kind of stuff, which is actually, as you may know, part of his secret for how he could do so many notes simultaneously. He had his picking finger, but then he had his middle finger and index finger that he could, you know, uh, catch those extra notes. He did that. Uh, one time I heard him, uh, you know, crank out this like Stevie Wonder clavinet sounding thing on the guitar using multiple fingers. I mean, so he was really a prolific musician, uh, familiar with all different styles of music. But, you know, for what people know him as with, with Vinny and, of course, to a lesser degree with Kiss, it was just mainly the straight-ahead rock-type playing. So he was a, a great player and a, obviously a great songwriter, very musical, a really good musician, you know? Yeah, I thought that he... You know, I'm just a fan. I'm not a musician. Sure. Uh, there's no way I could have a, a technical uh, conversation with you about uh, any instrument, really. But, like, I just... I mean, he was so good. He got kicked out of Kiss three times in like two years. They, <laughs> they kept bringing him back. Right, and, right. Uh, and, you know, it's always just boggled my mind how Vinnie Vincent basically got kicked out of the Vinnie Vincent invasion. I mean, it's, it's his band. I mean, Right, and I, I know that was, that was kind of the, uh, the misconception in a way. I mean, obviously, you know, it was his band. He was signed on the dotted line. There was no way to really kick him out of this band. And I think the idea that the three of us, me and... Dana and Mark, uh, during the second tour for All Systems Go, had a, this mutiny where we were trying to kick him out. It wasn't really about that. There was, so we can get into that if you want, but there was, uh, uh, th there was definitely uh, kind of a separation of church and state, if you will, between right. us and Vinny and all that. But ultimately, I mean, it was his band, his deal. He was the signed entity. And it wasn't until Mark Slaughter got his option picked up from Chrysalis that that kind of really drew a line in the sand and, and created a lot of separation between the camps and then, of course, they went on to do the slaughter thing and uh, all that, you know. And you, you guys on Chrysalis was, I think, was it the highest selling debut? It was the, it was the fastest selling okay. debut in the history of Chrysalis Records, according to someone. That was like that was like the marketing buzz. And I don't know how they how they figured that one out, but that was the the rap, you know. Because I mean, that was a big deal. Because I think Billy Idol was, uh, you right. know, on them as well. And I said, wow, you guys are outselling him, or, you know, that's I think got people to stand up and, and take notice and i guess his kiss background was I, I don't know it seems like you guys were tailor-made for success and certainly was the right era for that imagery right right and the mtv seemed to like you guys uh, it was all, all the, the timing of everything was really good it was a magical time man and you i mean you're i know i don't want to make you repeat the blog story because like your drumming it was very uh 
detail oriented. Uh, but I mean, you came out here from Houston, right? Uh, just not knowing anything for an audition, like right. nowhere to stay. Uh, kind of, uh, it really was inspiring to hear because I think people think, oh, you were just some famous drummer before. You just walked in, got the gig. Can you please tell about the audition? Uh, 40 minute audition. You thought it was going to be what, five, 10 minutes? That's what I was told, yeah. Uh, the the quick overview was there, there was, a, I was in a band, uh, a cover band, just touring around the South and Midwest, and another band that was on the circuit with us a band called Sweet Savage. Their singer, uh, uh, Joey, had I, I, I had reached out to him to ask what was going on on the West Coast. Did he have any hookups, connections, whatever. And I knew that he had just uh, done an EP with Dana Strum producing. And I also knew that Dana Strum had connections to Vinnie Vincent, that Vinnie Vincent obviously had left Kiss, was starting his own band, that kind of thing. So, uh, so Joey gave me Dana Strum's phone number, and I basically called and left Dana a, a detailed message just a stranger calling from some kid calling from Houston, asking for you know begging for an audition basically you know, so that kind of led to them uh, agreeing to to give me a shot. I talked at length on the phone with to Dana, and of course he knew that I know that I knew Jew, uh, Joey, so uh, he basically said, listen, uh, you know, finally like six weeks later when he called back to say, okay, come on out, we're going to have auditions. There were so many guys interested that they were going to do these like ten minute screening auditions. He said, so initially when you come out, you're not going to be playing with us. We're just going to listen to you play five, ten minutes, do some different things, and then we'll if we like what we hear, we'll have you come back for a second, more involved audition where you jam with the band, you know. So I said, okay, cool, uh, you know, no prob. And <laughs> so I had to kind of find my way out here. I had an old college roommate, uh, uh, friend Tim, who I, his apartment I stayed at right down off of La Brea and Melrose there. And so we, we go to the audition, and he comes in. He's going to be like my little makeshift drum tech. We set the drums up. And it was, uh, I just met Vinny, uh, Dana was there, singer Robert Fleischman was there. So those three guys just sat on the couch and I got behind the drums and just started playing. And it just, you know, I, I started getting a little more adventurous and trying some different things. And, you know, all of a sudden 10 minutes turned into 15, which turned into 20. And they kept asking me to do more and more things. But the bizarre thing about it was a lot of the, 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 the technical drumming stuff that I had you know, studied a lot and worked on a lot when I was a student at, at, at Berkeley in Boston and had spent so many times, so many hours practicing. As I started kind of throwing in some of that shit, some different sounding stuff that really caught their ear and they kept saying, oh, wow, try, what's that? Let uh, me hear more of that. And, and I would do like the, the like these Latin, kind of Latin rock, funky type things. And I remember Vinny thought that my Latin stuff sounded sexy. That's what he said. I thought that was kind of a, an interesting uh, comment. <laughs> Uh, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, then they then they started playing Stump the Drummer. Oh, wow, I see that you could do that with your right hand, but could you do the same thing with your left hand? You know, Anyway, 30 minutes, 35, 40, you know, it wound up being something like a 45-minute audition where I was pretty much hired on the spot. I mean, I think there was a, another guy who came in after me or whatever, but it was uh, it was just like the right thing, the right moment. Um, and it was, uh, I'll never forget that day, man. And I did the blog recently because it was the 30th anniversary of the actual audition date you know i mean does it seem like it's been 30 years in a way no but in a way yes <laughs> so much has happened then that uh but it just i mean just to say that you know 30 years it, it's i mean that's a long fucking time ago man and so it's hard to compute in my head that you know i was like 22 then you know it, it was a it was it was a lifetime ago man and like were you a kiss fan like were you not i mean in awe of oh my god i'm gonna audition for Vinnie Vincent or did you just want a gig 
Well, it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I, I grew up from the, you know, the, the Kiss Alive era, you know, and uh, was aware of, of, you know, when Vinny joined and that kind of thing. Was probably less of a Kiss fan at that point. Uh, however, I, I was a fan of, of, the, of the Lick It Up record and to some degree of Vinny's playing. I didn't know a whole hell of a lot about him, but it was, uh, I don't know, when I, when I first heard about the gig, I, it just something hit me like, yes, that's my gig. I don't know. I can't explain it. It was just when I first heard about it, I wanted I wanted that gig. Because, uh, I mean, what I mean, I know playing in tribute bands can be uh, financially rewarding, but creatively, is it like I, I want to play my own stuff or like be in a band? And I mean, like people look at Steel Panther and and they're great musicians, uh, but I'm sure the guys in Steel Panther want to be. I mean, do you think? It was like, I want to get out of the tribute circuit and just be in a band? For sure. I mean, and, and of course, then it was, you know, we were just called, we were, I guess we referred to just being in a cover band. Right. We, we played all, we played, you know, Motley and Ozzy and all, we, we played a wide range of that kind of whatever was popular back then. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it was, it's just a, it's a hamster wheel doing that kind of thing. And you could, you could, you know, back then, the way the club circuit was around the, the country was a whole different vibe than it is now. I mean, you can go to any big city. There would be multiple clubs with live music five, six nights a week. So as long as you wanted to keep your ass out on the road, you could do it. It was different than Steel Panther in that, you know, those guys make some decent bank. They make really good bank, oh. from what I understand. Back then, as I mentioned in the blog, I was earning probably $150 a week, and it was just – and I realized I could do, I could do this forever. I, I need to get into – some kind of a, a, a recording act situation, you know, a band that signed to a label. I wasn't sure what I would do yet, but I wanted to kind of take that next step, you know. So when I heard about Vinny, he had this record deal. He, I knew that there was, a, it, to me, it was like the best of both worlds. It was someone who was a known entity, but it was a fresh new project. I mean, I hadn't even heard the music or anything yet, you know. So there was just something when I heard about it, I said, man, I just felt drawn to it, you know. And, and as I alluded to in the blog, there was just this weird... You know, again, not to sound overly dramatic about it, but there was something ab about, you know, driving all the way out to L.A. and the whole process that just felt like I was fulfilling some kind of predestined <laughs> thing or whatever. It was, it's hard to explain, but so I just, all those things, you know, hearing about it, talking to Dana, all the things that went into to coming out for the audition all felt sort of preordained or something, you know, in, in a weird way. And once you got the phone call, I mean... What is that feeling like? I know Vinny said when he was uh, waiting for the phone call to replace Ace Freely that he literally, I don't know if he fibbed a little bit, but said he just sat in his bathtub for a week just praying for a phone call. He got it. And then, uh, you know, the rest is history. Were right, you the, waiting by the phone or were the, you? This, the, uh, I know that feeling. I know that the exact thing you're talking about because I've been through that a number of times in my career also where – I auditioned for something that I thought I was going to get and I didn't get the call back or I was waiting for somebody to call and I didn't get the call, whatever. This was a little different because it, I, I just like, I, I, I knew at the audition that I got the gig. I think they all knew I got it. They had some, a formality of, okay, listen, um, you know, they, they needed to talk amongst themselves. They needed, our manager was in New York. They needed, you know, there's just a few logistical things. So I think even as I mentioned in the blog, I actually don't remember the moment that Dana, whoever it was, called and said, hey, congratulations, you got the gig. Because I just knew at the audition that I got, like when I left, I, 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 there wasn't a question of, well, I hope I get it. It was just something about 
my interaction with everybody lie you know at, at the at the audition so that was what was kind of unusual it felt like i got hired on the spot more or right. less you know so because everyone else was in there for five ten minutes you're in there uh for you know 40 right. plus right and uh i thought the the best part of the blog was you played for 40 minutes and i think it was Vinny said let's see you do a solo do a drum I mean, solo yeah you know it's like, what were like, you doing the last what 40 minutes the fuck was i just doing the last 40 minutes here? every every solo look i ever knew but i think what he was you know he, it was kind of like a hodgepodge of, of just showing all the different things i could do so i think he wanted to kind of hear uh like a me in context of what i might do at a at a, at a show if i were going to do a four or five minute drum solo what would it be like it's beginning middle end what would it look like so i think that's what he was looking for so that's what i I finished up with, you know. Now, the recording process uh, for the first album, anyway, was, uh, you know, trying to be politically correct here, was, a, from what I can understand from certain things I've read by you and others, a, a bit torturous, would you say? It was a clusterfuck. Well, that's an even better word. <laughs> but done at a legendary uh, place uh, underneath where the Van Halen video for Jump was done. Wow, very good. Yeah, uh, Babyo Studios off Sunset was was the the, the room we used, and, and you kind of went up these stairs to to get to the studio there. Below the studio was this vacated theater where apparently uh, Van Halen did their jump video, but it was just like a literally nothing down there—an old dilapidated old theater, kind of like with the big stage and all that. So they worked something out where we could rent out the, the space to record drums and because we wanted like the ultimate mammoth live drum sound there. So it was a painstaking process where the drums were set up and mics were placed strategically around the space down there. Uh, we had a separate uh, run, a separate snake running that fed all the signal of the drums into a PA system that was blasting through Studio B over there. So when I was playing, and they're, they're recording in Studio A, they, they, what they're hearing are all the different mics that are picking up my drums in the live room, plus a separate feed of the live drums coming through a PA system, because that has its own kind of vibe. And, and so the drum sound was kind of like a combination of all these different things. Close mic, f distant mic for that natural reverb thing, the PA thing. It was an absolutely mammoth drum sound. I mean, everybody was so stoked about it. The engineer was like, "Hey, it's called it's called Mix Magazine. Have them come down and do an article." I mean, it was like that was the that was how blown away we were by the the drum sound we were getting, you know. So uh, and you know, if the story could be rewritten, we would have taken three or four days and laid down all the drum tracks with that sound, and would have been done with it there. But unfortunately, that's not. Uh, <laughs> Well, we'll get into that a little bit. I mean, uh, because I always thought the the drums on the first album until the remastered version had, or I don't want to say muffled, but like... That, that's, that's a polite word, yes. Uh, well, listen, for me to critique a drum sound on an album is, you know, I, I don't have a great musical ear, but I was like, he, you're such a powerful drummer, uh, and it's like, and I know Vinny's reputation, say, so let's hear the notes a million miles a minute and extended solos to say the least which i don't mind but it's like well i want to hear the other guys uh instruments too right right i mean well the fact that you know if, if you're saying that you're you're not an audiophile you're not the kind of guy who would do that but you still recognize that they sounded muffled and they were under uh, they were way under the mix that's a problem <laughs> you know so that was 
I, I think <clears throat> that was probably one of the tragic ironies of that record in that uh, all this time and effort not only was put together to get the drum sound, but you know the, the, the drums were recorded, were redone multiple times. I don't know if you what uh, how popular that uh, knowledge is of, of, of how, the, how the recording was done and what happened and all of that, but the the quick overview is you know typically when you do a record usually the drums are the first thing to be recorded uh i mean the day is rare even back then where the whole band would go in the studio record simultaneously and then everybody fixes their parts and you move on to the next song usually the key at the early part of a session is to nail down the drum parts and you may jam along with the guitar and or bass player uh, just uh, but the main thing you're capturing is drums and once the drums are, are all fixed up and ready to roll then you add bass then you put guitar all that Dana and Vinny, who co-produced, wanted to go the opposite direction, and this was largely Dana's influence. The way they, we did the record is we just had a, a basic drum machine groove as like a click track or like a metronome, and Vinny's rhythm guitar parts were the first keeper tracks recorded. So the first couple of weeks of the studio, I would just hang out and, and listen to these guys cut tracks, and it was just this basic drum machine, goons, tats, toons, tats, toons, tats. Not even a program part, just a basic drum machine. Vinny did his rhythm guitar tracks. Uh, after he, after they captured all the rhythm guitar, Dana dropped his bass on. So then when it came to do time to do drums, I was essentially replacing, if you will, the the, the drum machine tracks. So I was hearing in my headphones, keeper guitar, keeper bass, and drum machine. I was playing along with it. So we start recording, and of course, there, there was a, there was a, in retrospect, I understand a little bit more now why it kind of went down this way, but essentially what happened is Vinny became overly fixated on how dead accurate I played against the drum machine. Because normally, the drum machine, just a reference, if you can pull the drum machine out and listen to my drums against keeper, guitar, and bass, if it was grooving and sounding good, which we all thought it was, then that's cool. You know, you could, if there was a mistake made in the past, you could punch. You know, uh, back then you would, were using two-inch tape, so you kind of would punch in and punch out. Dana did all the recording. Uh, we had an engineer there, but Dana uh, uh, was, was the one to actually man the machine. But anyway, uh, we, what happened is Vinny started saying, wanted, he started wanting to listen to the drums against the machine. And if, there, if, if one bass drum was slightly off you know out of alignment with one of the, the the machine bass drum or something like that he would want them to go in there and and punch it and fix it so we would do that we'd make those fixits and then he would then he would pull out the guitar and bass and listen just to drums and drum machine and i mean i there'd be like phase cancellation and shit happening it would be so dead on but he would find like the one oh wait a minute listen to that hi-hat right there the third one the third one so it came out almost like this ocd kind of thing and so what should have taken a few days wound up taking a couple weeks to get through drum tracks doing this kind of thing, you know? And then, of course, this is a very involved story and a lot of things happen, but the, the in brief, what happened is after I thought... You don't have to be brief. <laughs> I mean, I know you got things to do, but uh, this, that, I mean, fans, uh, you know, been, the recording process for these two albums are almost so shrouded in mystery because... You know, I, I think Dana and Mark, you know, want to talk about Slaughter, and, and, right. and, and you've certainly done many things after this, but it, people still, I, I mean, so please, take your time. Okay, okay. Well, uh, it was right before Christmas of 1985, and I had the, the drum tracks finished, so I thought. And, and we had spent, you know, 
all of this time just going through every bar of every track, making sure everything was in perfect alignment with the drum machine to the detriment of the tracks I felt because I, I felt like I'd get a good performance of a, of a, of, of a song and with, with maybe a couple little mistakes here or there or sometimes I'd get a good start to finish pass. It felt like a live drummer in a big ass room uh, it, 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 we all, it, it was what we felt like the way it should have sounded, the sound we were going for. And I think in retrospect, what, what the problem was is, you know, this was right at the, uh, you know, Pyromania had just come out a, a year or two prior. So this was right at the beginning of that sort of program drum sound, you know, kind of vibe. Right. And, and a lot of the stuff Vinny, like Vinny would listen to a lot of like pop stuff, you know, Billy Ocean or Michael Jackson or this kind of thing. So he was used to those, you know, the, the, the mechanical, like the, almost like the robotic, you know, drum right. machine program parts. And I think he was, he was wanting to hear more of that kind of, you know, Mutt Lang, Def Leppard programmed sound. But what we were set up to do was live drummer in a big room sound. And I think he was constantly trying to reconcile this, you know, this big drum sound we had, and it's the fact that there's a live drummer playing with what he was, but what the way he heard this thing sounding more mechanically, mechanical or whatever. We didn't really put that together at the time, but in retrospect, I think that's what it was. Because when I tell people the story about all, you know, I, I ended up doing the record three times. Okay, so before Christmas, uh, went back to Houston, and right after the, the New Year or whatever, I mean, I, I I would hear rumblings that they were still fucking around with drum tracks and fixing this or that. I'm like, what what's going on over there? And eventually Dana said, you got to come back out, you know? And I didn't realize at that point how close I, I probably had been to, was, was to having, having gotten fired, actually. I think Vinny was disappointed. He didn't like the drum tracks. Uh, he thought my playing was, quote, all over the place to the machine and all that. And I ended up having to pay my own way back out to L.A. to do the record again with this twist. And the twist was, you know, they had sampled Kick and Snare. And I, I want to say I had, like, some kind of a weird like a setup in the studio where I had a, I was playing very machine-like and and uh, I, and they, they were trying to keep like the drum fills that I had done the first time around, but then replace the groove. I mean, it was an absolute fucking, you know, back alley clothes hanger abortion that time, what we were trying to get together on this on these passes. And, and the vibe was not good with Vinny, I felt. And, and of course, for me, a 22-year-old kid, I was like devastated. I'm like... I, I can't I thought I could play I can't play you know and of course everybody pulled me aside Bobby it's not like this way I've never seen anything like this happen before he's crazy don't take it personally that kind of thing so we got through the, the second go round, and I, I thought it sounded like shit it was like me trying to sound like a machine and it was the tracks were all it, it, it was a mess you know so I go back to Houston and finally somebody from the label and or our manager heard it and said this sounds like shit what happened to what you guys had originally? So then they flew me back out, okay, for the third go-round, and then we had a chance to kind of go back to square one and, and do what we had originally started doing. But the irony, and what I started to say earlier, is that when all was said and done, and we had these you know good-sounding live drum tracks with all of the overdubs and the guitar sounds and the you know multi-layered rhythm guitar tracks and the overall volume of the guitar solos uh you know the, everything got buried anyway you know so all of that room ambience and everything that we the, the, the pa thing you know all of the extra things the bells and whistles we had with the drum sound didn't matter we could have just recorded in any regular la drum room uh for to wind up with what we had and right. i think that was the disappointing thing 
in the end like man we had this kick-ass drum sound but just the way it all went in the post-production with the mixing and and some of the decisions that were made with guitar levels and all that those are competing frequencies and when you hear a marshall you know those rhythm guitar tracks those frequencies are going to be right in the same line as, as my you know kick and snare my tom you know drum tracks and of course as you mentioned it just had a very muffled type sound and it, it, to me I still enjoy those records. I love the the songs. I even enjoy, you know love Benny's playing, but it, it's like the drums are still hard for me to listen to. You know. Oh, I, I my preference is the first record. But I'm a Robert Fleischman fan. Right, right. Uh, but I don't know. It just seemed like he was trying to. I've often thought he was trying to make the drumming on at least the first record sound like the Cars. Like that. You know, I love the cars, right. too, I mean, but when I think of you as a drummer, right. I don't think of David Robinson in right, the right. same... Uh, yes, I agree. <laughs> you know, it would be like, you know, you being in the car. I wouldn't see uh, him being in the Vinnie Vincent right. uh, invasion. And this is before you guys had even gone on a tour. Right. Uh, I mean, was, uh, was there almost a sense of, uh, maybe I wish I didn't get the gig? No, <laughs> there, there wasn't. There, I mean, I, I mean, I uh, when when we were at the the height of all the issues there. I mean, I was depressed and I, I I was disillusioned about things and all that. But I was really just trying to keep the gig. I mean, I still wanted the gig. I didn't, you know, at that point, I didn't have the overall perspective that I was able to get later as to why this shit was happening, why he was doing this. And and again, whenever people hear the story, their main thing is what an asshole, you know. But the thing I got to say is. I don't think Vinnie Vincent, you know, woke up every morning saying like, how can I go to the studio and make this Bobby Rock kid's life a living hell? I don't think his intention was to be that way. I think he was just struggling. I think it was two things. One, he was struggling to try to hear, you know, create the drum tracks in a way that he was hearing in his head that would have been more suited just to program him on a, on a drum machine. And number two, uh, you know, this is my speculation, but, but maybe there was some good old-fashioned OCD, you know, the, the kind of thing where... You know, the guy has to have the, the, the soup cans facing out in the pantry, and then he, go, he keeps going back and checking to make sure that they haven't turned, and he can't leave his house till he knows that. It, I mean, not that Vinny did that, but I mean, that right. kind of OCD compulsion thing. I, I, th there could have been some of that. Like, he, the, the, the idea that one of the bass drums in the second verse might be slightly off from the drum machine was unacceptable. So we had to go in there and make sure that every single kick and snare and hi hat was in perfect alignment with the machine. It was almost like an obsession in a way you know do you think he, in his own mind and i know you can't get into his mind but he was like well kiss is still successful without me i mean the animalized was a pretty big album for them with you know mark st john and then yeah uh, i think right around the first album you guys were recording uh, asylum was right uh, right tears are falling and, and do you think he was like i gotta outdo kiss i gotta like you know what's funny is i remember him specifically saying that uh, we, we were we were at the studio watching like a Paul Stanley interview on on MTV or something, and we knew the record was out, was doing well. I remember him saying that he was glad that they were doing well because it made them still relative, which made him still relative. Right. So he had no issue with oh we, he wanted their next record to bomb, so ours. He liked the fact that they were still out there, you know, doing good business, selling records. Because as the ex guitar player from that band. It made him more relative, he thought, you know. Right. I thought that was a healthy attitude, you know, to have. Well, I just it always, you know, his reputation over the years has been so bad, but it's like, to me, he rescued Kiss. Like, right. Uh, you know, people forget, and, and this isn't a podcast about Kiss, per se, but it's like, you know, Unmasked didn't do right, very right, well. Right, right. 
that was Kiss trying to sound like the Cars, uh, and then the Elder was uh, questionable. Uh, you know, I think uh, Gene and Paul saying, "Hey, we can be like Pink Floyd." Pink Floyd, yeah. And then uh, Creatures of the Night was, uh, I thought, a great uh, or, or a very good album, but uh, didn't maybe sell like they wanted. But that was when Vinny kind of came into the fold, and then Lick It Up was maybe even a precursor to the Invasion albums. I mean, it, it was like a Vinny solo record, uh, I thought, you know, because he wrote, I think, eight, co-wrote eight out of the eight ten, ten songs. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it didn't work out. And so now that we got through the recording process, you get the Alice Cooper tour. Yes. And I know one of the highlights of uh, your concert playing, exp- you know, maybe top gigs, and your incredible resume is the Alice Cooper gig Halloween Yes, Joe Louis Arena. Actually, two nights, the 30th and the 31st in Detroit, Alice's hometown. I believe both nights were sold out. They were, uh, for some reason, I have a crazy memory for uh, exact dates, but those were the third and fourth shows of the tour. We started, first show was Lansing, Michigan. Then we went to Kalamazoo, and then we had these two shows in Detroit. Alice Cooper was one of my all-time favorites as a kid growing up, seeing the inside of, the Alice Cooper record Killer, where he's hanging from right, a noose. Right. That was like a big turning point in my young life to wanting to somehow be a part of the madness. And um, so to to all of a sudden get that tour. And that, by the way, here we are 30 years later, but that was considered his quote-unquote comeback tour for Alice Cooper because he had taken a few years off, I believe. And now this was his big comeback tour to, to go. And we, were, we jumped out on it with him. So... It was, uh, I had a lot of great memories. Uh, to, I bet. To, to see him, to meet him, to, to catch the show, to be out on the, you know, a lot of excitement around, you know, uh, on the tour and then playing these big arenas and all that. I mean, just, what, uh, a year before or whatever, I'd been playing, you know, clubs everywhere. And so it was like a, it was a big thing, you know, a big Cause thing. Because he was, uh, Alice was, I don't think people realize, he was uh, pretty much close to death, Uh in the early to mid 80s you know right. he was not doing very well and then uh i think he linked up with uh, kane roberts right right who yep. uh i've always thought you guys should have been in a band together <laughs> <laughs> um, and i guess kane got him a little more uh, health regimented right, right. and uh you know that band he had i think it was kip winger kip was, winger in, was it, in it uh, yeah and, uh, the, the uh, ken mary on drums right, right ken great and, drummer uh, Devlin Seven, and, right? Uh, you remember? Wow, yeah. You know, I got a weird uh, Rain Man ability for the '80s, and wow. uh, so that was. Uh, I think MTV was like Alice Cooper's back, so there was a lot of buzz around that tour. Well, they recorded. They didn't. They didn't do record our set, but they recorded Alice that night at Joe's Arena uh, for for a Halloween special. Right. What well, What was it like? You know, because Alice Cooper fans are very loyal. You know, they're they're very like Kiss fans. You know. Kiss fans go to a concert. They sure. don't care who the opening act is. Uh, was it a tough, even though it was a great environment, knowing that most of the people probably were there to see Alice Cooper, were they uh, apprehensive with you guys at first? I, I don't remember that. I mean, I, I, I remember, you know, having good crowds there. I, I think, you know, back then, you know, uh, we have to remember MTV actually played videos back then. Uh. So it was like... And, you know, the Boys Are Gonna Rock video was, was a regular rotation. So I think people knew who we were. We were getting airplay in a lot of cities back then. There was a lot of promotional stuff surrounding the tour, uh, record signing, th- you know, record stores, right. uh, in-store signings. Um, 
uh, radio station visits, all this kind of stuff. So you know, we'd go into these different cities. I think we had a lot of our folks there, and I think a lot of his folks knew who we were. That was cool. I, it, it was a little more problematic a, a few months later on the Iron Maiden tour. That was a little more of a, a more hostile environment because I think there was a little more of a line in the sand between a lot of the, the whatever hair metal or glam, whatever you want to call it, the, the, the bands that we were doing, and then like the Iron Maiden, Metallica, more of that, that side of the fence, you know. So we had a little more of a, of a challenge with the, with, with the pink, you know, uh, 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 cabinets and, and the kind of shit we were carrying around back then in front of those guys than we did with Alice for some reason, you know. Uh, what, I mean, seems like the recording process was, uh, you know, uh, difficult at times. Just uh, what was it like playing with Vinny live? And Because you, know, you guys were a unique sounding band. You, Robert Fleischman, very uh, just high vocals. Right. Uh, Vinny's playing is, uh, I don't want to say all over the place, far be it for me to uh, <laughs> critique his playing. It, was it tough for you to like keep up with his uh, speed playing in a live setting? Uh, not really, because well, the first thing we should mention just for the, the historical clarity is that, you know, of course, Robert, you know, he, he did the record with us. He did the initial photo shoot with us. And then that was it. There was some business issues I, I never really knew what exactly it was but between Vinny or between Robert and Vinny or Vinny's manager or Chrysalis Records or somewhere in, in, in the paperwork shuffle they couldn't come to terms so Robert bowed out and then Mark Slaughter was brought in uh, right at the beginning of right when it was time to start rehearsing for the tour right before the boys are going to rock video uh, and for that whole initial you know all, all the initial promo shots all that uh, uh, you know that's when Mark Slaughter joined the band. And I should point out also that the very first time the Vinnie Vincent Invasion performed in any kind of a live stage environment was on the Boys Are Gonna Rock video. The most we had done prior to that was just some rehearsals at SIR off, over here off Santa Monica Boulevard. There had been no live playing, no live shows. And the other thing is that most people don't realize is that Mark Slaughter as a, as a singer always was a guitar player too. He's actually a really good guitar player. All the bands he'd been in, he played guitar and sang. Vinnie Vincent, just lead vocalist. So on the Boys Are Gonna Rock video, that is the first time that Mark Slaughter got up in front of a band as a full-on frontman and performed at the video shoot, <laughs> which most people don't realize. I think it's kind of an interesting trivia point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was always uh, not, not having any inside info at the time. I'm like, Jesus, that doesn't look like Robert Fleischman. Right. That's his voice. So Mark, and I, this is not breaking news, but Mark was just lip syncing to sure, Robert's sure. vocals, and, and, and of course nobody bothered to get any kind of clearance or any you know any kind of release about that via Robert. So uh, let's just say some money exchange hands between Chrysalis and Robert, because like, I think I think Robert, I think his thing was like he's at home, he heard the song come on, he looks on MTV, and he sees a guy quote in pumps singing my guitar tracks, you know. And so, or singing my vocal tracks. So, uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a, of a legal snafu they had to work through. But other than that, I mean, uh, you know, Mark Slaughter came in and did, you know, he has those bionic pipes. I mean, they're two different kinds of singers. I, I like to say, when I was doing the first record, I heard some of Robert Fleischman's vocals, uh, vocal tracks soloed. So to just hear his vocal parts by themselves was frightening, man. I mean, he, he, was, he was such a seasoned... It, it was scary, man, how, how good it sounded. I mean, like the hair on the back of your neck would stand up. So much ferocity in his voice. 
he had that again that season soulfulness kind of thing happening and i think he's he's probably more of a i don't know by by nature a, a, i guess a mainstream rock type singer you know he was in journey for a minute right. he did that kind of thing but for some reason he had this ability to sing that hard rock stuff that Vinny did in that upper range and he sounded really incredible so and of course he hit this stratospheric uh, kind of thing right. with his vocals so Mark Slaughter comes in, you know, younger and was, was still getting the experience. But the fact that he could nail all that shit is a testament to his his ability, his raw ability and his the freakish nature of his range as well. You know, I mean, I could only think of maybe Michael Sweet, who could rival their uh, ability for and Jim Gillette, of course. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, as far as the, the that's the, another the level. Range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you? Uh, I mean, was it w weird, like, you guys are just about to pop? Uh, did you uh, think to yourself, man, the, the singer's gone already? Yeah, it, it, it was weird. I mean, the only saving grace was the fact that, you know, Robert really had a resistance to all the heavy glam stuff, even when you look in the, the, the back, the album cover, you know. Like, he was not having it, man. They they've tried to get him to look more like you know like you guys yeah and he just uh he just wasn't into it he thought it was a, a faddish type thing and and uh you could hardly get any eyeliner on him he just wasn't uh interested he didn't he came from the old school whatever you want to say about it so so i think the fact that he wasn't going to be on board the the flip side was well you know we'll get somebody who maybe is is uh more in sync with the overall vibe right. i guess that was the the the, the, the only way we could really look at it we knew it was a devastating blow i mean hell our, our front man's gone before we even hit the road you know but i think that was what it was so you know all of the the promo shots the video all those things had mark in it so it was like immediately i mean it was a little awkward at times mark had to sign a shitload of albums uh with Robert's photo right. on there, that kind of thing. But ultimately, it wasn't of too much consequence, I think, because Mark came in early enough so that all the live stuff, all the photos, and of course the video was done with him, you know. Now, we'll get to the uh, image uh, just briefly. Uh, you know, this was at a time when, uh, you know, uh, it was about as glam as you could get. I mean, right. Rat was... Uh, Popping pretty big at that time. Motley Crue, of course, was, uh, you know, huge. Judas Priest even did uh, uh, an album that was uh, pretty glam at the time with parental guidance. And, right. And, uh, you know, Kiss was uh, looking like uh, drag queens. And uh, <laughs> was uh, did someone come to you guys and go, hey, guys, the album sounds great, but this is what you guys got to look like? You know, before we even did the record, my recollection is that I, I, I think Dana Strum was the one to really pull the strings on let's go in this direction. You know, the that, that first Poison record it was just out. Uh, so I think, and, and when you look around. Right, that was the thing that was happening. You know, the, the transition from sort of like the early 80s Motley Crue with the black leather and the, and the tough type vibe. It was everything was softening now. Everything was going more for this crazy, colorful, spiked hair, makeup thing, you know. And I, I think the the philosophy was is that yeah, Vinny has this thing. It's, it's it's very viable musically. It's it's arena rock. There's this you know great musicianship in the band. This killer guitar player and all that. So let's combine the best of both worlds. Let's be all of that, but then let's let's also 
fit in uh, with, with, with what's going on glam-wise and all that, uh, with, with the poison, the Motley Crue, and that whole kind of thing that was happening. So it was, to some degree, a calculated thing, because as a band, we never had a chance to sort of go out and find our way by playing live shows and trying different things. And so it was, it was something that was kind of decided uh, be, beforehand. This was the direction we were going to take image-wise, you know. And then by the time we got on the other side of the record, it was time to work with the designer, clothing designer, and all that. Everybody was pretty set on, you know, just going way over the top with things. We but, didn't know how far over the top it was going to wind up, but that was the. <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> was there? I mean, the boys uh, are going to rock video was just uh, complete madness. Was right, it? Right. Uh, you know, that to me was the video that signaled, "Wow, this is really heading into a over the top." Uh, you know, I thought Steve Stevens at Billy Idol was was kind of wild looking back then, and and then you guys, it was like Steve Stevens times a hundred. Uh, was there? Uh, I mean, I guess Robert was right. Like, it, it, I guess it kind of faded out after a while, but was just like, hey, this is what's going to be big. Let's do it. And, and look, at you know, it, it's like that retrospective view. You know, like to, to go back and say, you know. What, you know, could we have or should we have taken more of a middle of the road, uh, you know, White Snake, Iron Maiden, more of that, more of a classic rock look without all the, the, the big hair and all that? Would, 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 would we have had more credibility? Would we have, would, you know, would we have found our lane a little better or even, even better if we would have done that? It's easy to go back in retrospect to look at that, uh, look at it that way. But the truth is, when we did it and, and the video came out, it, it all seemed to, to work. You know, in the moment, for the first year, year and a half of, of doing that, everything seemed to work. Then I think by the time we got around to the second record, Guns N' Roses had come out and kind of leveled the playing field, uh, kind of taken things, they'd taken things away from. Back then it was like the street look or whatever. You know? right. So everything kind of softened back up again, meaning that we kind of, uh, if you'll notice on the second record, it was more modified. You know, it was less of, of all the pink and all that kind of shit. And, it was, and we kind of had mellowed things out. So I think image-wise, we were kind of just following what we thought at the time was the acceptable you know, rock and roll attire and look and that kind of thing. And, and I think Vinny had some unique ideas about, <laughs> you know, uh, I think he had a way to kind of take things to the next level with the glam stuff, uh, to say the least. Right. Well, no, I mean, even in the picture you uh, have in front of you, and I know that this is uh, just uh, audio only, but uh, I, that you do, you guys in that uh, picture do seem to kind of, scaling it back a little there's no question because this this is this was the main promo shot for the all systems go right. campaign you know so yeah i remember the, the the word on the the word to us was let you know do more of a street you know kind of thing like where, in other words be more pedestrian looking and that was our version of being more <laughs> straight ahead or pedestrian looking compared to all the heavy duty glam and the you know shiny uh, you know th that that whole scene that we had on the on the first record you know because, like, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses, I think I want to say, I might be off, and I know music fans jump on me. If they were kind of buzzing around 88. Right. Around the same time the second album. Uh, yeah. I mean, what was it like when you saw or heard that record? Uh, and it was like, wow, this might be uh, time to... Uh, like, was it a real, like, kick in the balls for glam bands to go, this is what's coming next? I don't. I don't recall it being that way. I mean, I think we. Anybody who heard that record said, "Wow, there's something special here," you know. So I think we all felt like it was going to be a big record. Uh, 
I didn't necessarily perceive it as, oh, wow, this is going to come out and nullify everything that we're already doing. It just seemed like a kind of a variation on some of what was already happening, more or less. Right, know? right. Um, so then the recording process of the second record seemed like it was a little more uh, easy. Yes. We had learned our lesson from <laughs> the first time around. We did it more traditionally. We, In fact, I want to say that Dana and I maybe even recorded together. We were back down in the big theater. So I, I, was, I was down. And by the way, you could only get in and out of that room by way of this catwalk that went from the studio above. So we had to take this catwalk down, the, or I had to kind of you know, shimmy down this catwalk, and it was like this whole process to get down there. Uh, for both records, there was always a video camera on me so they could see what I was doing up in the control room, but, but never, you know, Big Brother could see me, but I couldn't see Big Brother, you know, in the control room, which was always kind of awkward. But nonetheless, uh, Dana was upstairs uh, in the control room, track and bass, and I, I, I want to say that we recorded that second record kind of drums and bass to maybe scratch guitar or something. Probably did the whole thing in three days, you know, like it should have been the first time. So it was a, a much easier process on the on the second one, you know. And did you, uh, I don't put you on the spot here, but at least in the recording studio, did you prefer recording with Robert or Mark in terms of vocally? Uh, was one easier to uh, drum to or? In both cases, the vocals were done after my drums you know, after my drums have been laid down, so I didn't have the experience of actually jamming with either one of them live. Right. Uh, I, I was probably a lot more involved with Mark's vocals because at that point, you know, we were we were roommates. They had an apartment for us. We were living together, and he would go. Do, I remember the day, you know, after drum tracks, he would go in and they'd record vocals, and I would hang out with him there and all that. So I was I was around a lot more during the the drum tracks. I, I guess I felt a, more of a connection to the recording process on the second record because I was in L.A. the whole time it was going on as opposed to being back in Houston after I did drums for the first one. All right. Now, I don't like talking about bad stuff, Bobby. <laughs> but what... Uh, so the second record did well. Yeah, I think... Not it did quite... Right. Did it live up to the hype of the first one, I guess is what I'm trying to... I don't know that it lived up to the hype of it. I think at the end of the day, they both probably sold a few hundred thousand. I want to say sales were probably similar for both of them. Um, we got a, we got a couple videos out of the 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 second one. We had that thing in Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street. Street, yeah, which is a big boost. Love uh, Kills, Love Kills was was a was probably the biggest song we had at, at radio and on MTV and that kind of thing. So, uh, but there was probably less of, of an overall vibe, I would say, on that second record. And by the time we hit the road, we were all hanging on by a thread at that point. You know, what was the biggest tour for the second album? Uh, that we. Uh, our, all of our touring for the second record was just headlining big clubs and right. small theaters kind of thing, you know? And was that like, uh, I don't want to say, I guess where I'm trying to take this is, uh, I mean, what kind of was the beginning of the end, at least f for you and the invasion? Was it second album's done, touring small, not small clubs, but your clubs, smaller venues in the first tour? Was it like, oh, is there going to be a third album? No, before we even hit the road for the second tour, we all knew we were riding on the Titanic. We all knew it was it was just a matter of getting through this tour. Um, what happened was when the second record was finished and we were you know getting everything ready to to, to roll with that, uh, we we were is either before we start we did that that time of year video or. 
it was somewhere in that it was before we hit the road but while we were still in la getting everything ready to roll we started uh we were looking for new management and why if you can get it sure there, there, there was a feeling that our first record should have done better that we should have had a second video that you know this kind of thing so i think a lot of that fell on the shoulders to some degree of our label which we couldn't do anything about we were signed to chrysalis and i guess we felt like it's not it wasn't really a hard rock label and they should have done this and they should have done that but then the other thing was a lot of it fell on the shoulders of of george suet who is our original manager and it, it you know again it's hard to say whose fault was what or whatever but it was just they, they were determined to to let George go and get into some quote real manager get 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 a bigger manager get a manager who could make uh, uh, more things happen like a Doc McGee type something like that yeah so we 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 had a series of meetings with different managers and the other thing was and this is what's kind of difficult to to talk about but we you know I think uh, Dana Mark and I felt like and, and this was just feedback that we had gotten from the first record or the first tour and all that, that we, we, we felt like there were things that Vinny might have been doing that were, could ultimately have been a, a detriment to the band, just from our perception. Who knows, you know, what, what to attribute to what. But what happened was we'd have these meetings with a different manager, then all of a sudden, like, Dana would pull the guy aside or we would have a separate meeting with the manager when Vinny wasn't there, kind of delicately, you know, trying to, uh, you know, uh, outline what some of the challenges would be if they were going to take us on. We had this problem, Vinny's doing A, B, and C. What can we do to circumvent some of the things he was doing? Blah, blah, blah. And what, so event, I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version here, but eventually what happened is, is one of the manager guys pulled Vinny aside and said, you know, your band, I think, is trying to undermine you because I, they just had a separate meeting with me. And like, he like, spilled the beans about right. what was going on. So Vinny came and confronted us with it, and we all, oh, no, it was a misunderstanding and all that. But, but the vibe was just strained at that point, going on the road for the next tour. So we had a lot of cool things happening, but before we left, there was just this weird vibe where Vinny felt like there had been this band mutiny, and he didn't know to what extent he could trust us. Uh, and his option did not get picked up for a third record on Chrysalis, but Mark Slaughter's did. Okay. So... His option gets picked up right before the Love Kills video gets edited. And I remember one of the first stops on the tour, They back then, of course, everything was VHS tapes and this and that. They sent us a tape of the cut, and of course, Mark Slaughter is all over the Love Kills video because Crystal's is thinking like, wow, this is going to be our next guy. Right. Let's really feature him in the video. And I don't think Vinny was was too happy about that because he felt like this is my band ultimately. And you know. But anyway, so uh, but the, the, the real demise... Uh, and I, I probably have, have spoken about this publicly a time or two is all, is that on the road early in the tour, I did pull Vinny aside. And I did, in my naivete, probably say a little too much about, listen, we were unhappy about A, B, and C. So, yes, we did have a couple meetings. And thinking that if I leveled with him, you know, that he would understand more about what was going on. And it backfired because then he perceived you know, that kind of confirmed his suspicions that there was this band mutiny thing and all that. And the rest of the tour was all fucked up. It was like Vinny and his tour manager. And then the manager we wound up getting kind of ended up, um, that, that's a whole other story, but he kind of, it was like the, the new manager, Vinny, and the tour manager in one camp, and then me, Mark, and Dana trying to hang on in the other camp. 
and there were all kinds of weird shit went down the rest of the tour. Like we'd finish a show someplace, and whenever Vinny was ready to split, they would just get in the van, the, the the bus, and go back to the hotel. And if we weren't ready to leave yet, we'd have to find like fans would be bringing us back to the hotel. It was like you know. And the other weird thing about that tour was we wouldn't see Vinny during the day until right before showtime. Like we would go to soundcheck by ourselves without Vinny. And then he would go to the gig separate from us, and like five minutes before we were going to walk on stage, Vinny would walk out from his practice room backstage someplace. Hey, what's up, guys? Cordial, you know? Right. Nobody was fighting or whatever. And we'd do the show. After the show, it was like we were, everybody, we were just punching the time clock, basically, doing these shows because we had a couple months worth of dates on the, on the books. So it was all a matter of let's just get through this tour, more or less. So when does it become... I mean, because the number one question I think people want to know, and I know you've talked about it a little bit, uh, why weren't you in Slaughter? You know, going through two mo- two or three months, whatever it was, of that kind of thing, what ended up happening is, like, Vinny was on one side of the fence, Mark and Dana were on the other side, and I felt like I was somewhere in the middle. I mean, believe it or not, I mean, I still had a, a certain amount of allegiance to Vinny. There was talk of me staying on board with Vinny for the next, whatever his next thing. At the time, I think he was going to, he had something on board with, with Enigma or something. Megaforce. Uh, th- yeah, one of those. I, th- I think it was Enigma. It was an indie label. But nonetheless, that that was a possibility. Um, but by the time, and then, and then the, the Mark and Dana thing, I, you know, I was invited to do it. I was expected to do it. Uh, but by the time we got through those, you know, grisly three months on the road there, I, j- I really felt like, for my own sanity, I needed to separate from everyone. Right. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go play with the Nelson brothers. And said, it's like Nelson brothers weren't even in the picture. Then. It was just like, you know what? You guys do, do your new record, you know, Mark and uh, Dana. No, no hard feelings. Vinny was going to go off and do his thing. No hard feelings. And I, I just kind of, you know went out on my own basically so i just really needed that that separation from the camp at that point you know? but i would imagine since you were at at that time now a very high profile drummer that uh many gigs were offered to you yeah i mean i i, I figured i would find something else i would i could play on people's records and, and even out of the gate there were a couple recording things i could do and, and i did my first uh drum instructional video and wrote my first drum book you know this kind of so i had stuff to do and i just figured i would i would find another gig you know which right. eventually i did without with, within six months or whatever it was you know right because uh was there any uh not bitterness is the wrong word but like when you see slaughter kind of take off uh was there like oh man maybe uh yeah <laughs> i should have gone with those guys <laughs> to be honest yes you know i Number one, I didn't know they had a record like that in them, if I'm just being perfectly candid. Because I never heard, you know, Vinny did all the songwriting. I never heard any of Dana. I, I knew Dana was a great producer, but I never heard any of their of, of their material, you know. And they were going to go write this new record. I, I, I didn't know they had a record like that in them. And, and, and the brass at Chrysalis had, had changed over quite a bit between All Systems Go and the first Slaughter record. It was a whole different label. They knew how to market a hard rock. They had Mike Bone on board over there. They knew how to market a hard rock record. And it came out, uh, by the time the Slaughter record came out, which I want to say was January of 1990, I had already, I, I, I was with the Nelson Brothers. That record was in the can, and it would come out about six months later. It came out summer of 1990. But for those first six months, man, 
that fucking you know up all night and fly to the angel like these tunes were it was like uh, every you couldn't turn on mtv without seeing those videos so to be honest i thought oh shit i hope i did the right thing i mean it, again in retrospect i had other reasons for not doing it but yes when i saw when i saw the shit blow up i did have second thoughts <laughs> and then Bloss was a student of yours yeah he was back in houston so uh, was that even like not uh, i mean i'm sure you were happy for him but it was like Wow, my students at the moment anyway right, right. got a better gig than I do. Right, right. So yeah, makes- I was okay with it. I mean, I you know he, he you know he really got that gig on his own. I mean, I, I didn't even go to Mark Day and say, oh, by the way, this guy would be a great replacement. He just you know confirmed with me. So you're not going to do that gig? I said, nah, I'm not, man. Uh, and and so he he kind of there was another guitar player from Houston that wanted to try to get in on it. So I think he kind of sent his promo thing. He really got the gig on his own. He was the perfect drummer for that band. And I never, I, I felt, I felt good that he, at least one of us, were doing it, you know. <laughs> but then Nelson blew up, right? And, and then the uh, Nelson, we had, a, we had a really good run with, with, with that, you know. So I mean, I saw you guys at uh, it was my, I mean, Springsteen was my first concert at the Coliseum, five straight nights, something I'll wow. never forget. I mean, the, I mean, the Coliseum for God's right, sakes, right, right, right. But my first uh, rock concert was '91 uh, at Long Beach Arena. Uh, it was uh, Winger. Slaughter and Kiss, but I remember the Nelson twins were right behind me. Ah, I remember that. In the crowd. Right. All these hot chicks kept looking back at me, (laughs) and I thought, well, geez, I'm not the best looking guy in the world back then, maybe even now. (laughs) Uh, And I was like, why are these chicks waving to me? And they were right behind me. I don't know if you were next to them with them. I I, I just remember remember that they went to that, and I remember when when they were brought out, I think our tour manager guy told me later that when they were brought out from the backstage area and walked out to the control room, or whatever, everybody made a big fuss and that kind of thing, you know. So, I remember they went to that show. It's kind of funny, yeah. What was uh, the recording process like for Nelson? It, it was pretty straightforward. You know, we 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 had a false start with the we had a, a one particular production team that we did a few songs with that it didn't work out. But overall, it, it was everything was pretty straight ahead, pretty harmonious on that record. You know, Mark Tanner produced, we had David Donner on engineered it. Um, you know, kind of like the, the traditional way. Uh, I mean, look at every single record I've done since that first Vinny record, every time I've set foot in the studio, nothing has ever been as hellish as that first experience. So, again, in retrospect, I'm glad it was because, you know, I didn't think so at the time, but I'm glad I went through, I got that out of the way first because no other recording I would ever do would, would be anything like that experience of just banging your head against the wall trying to produce something that was almost unproducible. So the Nelson record was was pretty straight ahead. You know, we record again, live drums, Matthew and I, the bass player, uh, Matthew Nelson, and we, we recorded our tracks together with against scratch guitars. Um, it was pretty, pretty easy. Right. And then when, uh, after the rain took off, right. Uh, you're like, was it like, hey, I'm back on MTV? Like, yes, yeah, it was. <laughs> and then uh, they had, and then what was it like? Uh, I mean, Nelson had, uh, I guess, did they? Uh, I mean, this is right around the time when uh, harder music was starting to, you know, uh, come in vain. Was when you were in Nelson? Was it like? Was there a point where there'd be a video or a band where it's like uh, the ship is about to sail on this type of uh, poppy metal music? You know, um, I I think again the retrospective view. You know that band. I I think we kind of wound up, you know, in that sort of metal edge, you know, world. Right. 
just by default, you know, I, um, when you think about the Nelson brothers, who they are, where they came from, what they do, you know, it, it was, there wasn't anything else really like it at the time. You know, I mean, it was, it was really, it was really, if we're being honest, a little too light for the, you know, even by Warrant standards or Slaughter standards or any of the other bands that were going on, Cinderella or whatever, you know, it, it was a little too light to really fit in with all those bands, but it was too heavy for like the new kids on the block thing right. or whatever, you know, so we were kind of in this weird nomad land in between those worlds and we kind of default were pushed into you know all the marketing strategies that you would use for the you know at metal edge and all those magazines and all that but at the same time you know the the 16 and younger female crowd really caught on so the, the brothers were always like in this 16 magazine and tiger beat and all that shit so it was a weird hybrid in our audience you know we ended up we couldn't really find a tour we couldn't find a suitable tour to jump on so we ended up headlining you know, 1,500 to 3,000 seat uh, theaters. And like the, the the audience was like all, like a, like a David Cassidy, you know, like a young right. girl type. Like the, the, the shrieking was so loud that we had to actually upgrade the sound system on the Nelson tour on two separate occasions during the first three or four weeks of the tour. That's how loud these little bitches would yell at the show like that. It's this shriek, you know? And so that's a different kind of scene than what was happening, like, you know, Slaughter being out with Kiss or, you know, doing more of a traditional hard rock kind of thing. So it, it was it was a weird it was a weird thing to, to play in that band at, at a time where, you know, we I think we were kind of like the redhead stepchild of that thing. Like, oh, Nelson, they're more of a pop band or, you know, it, it had more of that kind of vibe. But it was, you know, we were what we were. And again, if you if you look at the Nelson brothers, where they come from, I mean, you know, their dad, Rick Nelson. He was really an innovator in the California sound, the acoustic guitar thing. You know, he was a precursor to bands like the Eagles, that kind of thing. So they grew up more from that. You know, you, you pick up an acoustic guitar, you write a song, the singer-songwriter kind of vibe, singing harmonies. You know, they, they always, they still do. They sing their asses off. They do what they do really well. Uh, but it's a different vibe than growing up on Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and more of the blues-based rock that, we, that all the other bands were doing, you know. So... I guess it would just it kind of stuck us in a, in a weird middle ground where we never really felt deeply rooted right. anywhere in particular. Because you guys were like to me like the last band of the, and I mean this term you know affectionately the glam era sure, to like sure. kind of get on MTV right, and, and right. you know uh, for the Nirvana and Pearl Jam and right 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 uh, grunge wave uh, hit. Uh, you know, w was there a tour? Once again, like you say, in retrospect, that you think you guys could have got on that would have made the ship ride last a little longer. Like, I mean, I know Kiss at that time was, uh, um, well, I guess the, the Hot and Shade tour was 89. Actually, but. we wound up in their bus. So I know they were off the road. <laughs> right. that, that was a novelty. We were on tour in the Kiss bus, the bus that they had used on their last tour. That was what the big, the, the funny novelty was. So I think they were off the road at the time. I mean, we had a pretty. We were we were out for almost all of '91. You know, we the, the tour started. Happen to remember, February 14th in St. Louis. But <laughs> and we we toured. We we did uh, we we did a two three months of, of of a really successful theater tour. Then our manager, uh, Larry Mazer, was actually the manager for Cinderella. So for whatever reason to help them sell tickets to whatever that he put us on the bill between Cinderella and Lynch mob. So we did a couple months of arenas and, and I don't know that that was a great idea for 
you know, I don't know that their audience was, was thrilled to see Nelson. Meanwhile, a lot of our younger audience, I don't think the parents wanted to bring them to a Cinderella concert or whatever, you right. know, with the dope smoking and all of that. So, but we, we, you know, made it through there and then we, we ended up doing some headlining sheds and stuff like that. So it, it turned out okay. We, we had, we had a good year. I don't know that there was a more ideal band. I mean, probably something like Bon Jovi or something like that would have been probably a better fit right. for us. Uh, but that was it. We we wrote it out. We did the, we as for as long as we could. We went to Japan at the end of the year, and that was it. Then we started thinking about the next record, you know. But I mean, even Bon Jovi was uh, like I remember I saw them at the Forum, and uh, I think Arcade was the opening band, ah, which was uh, right. Stephen Pierce's. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Po- and even Bon Jovi was kind of uh, I don't want to say toughening up their image, but uh, they weren't dressed to the nines and uh, sure, you know, singing the Desmond Child pop songs. They were you know kind of. For them, trying to be uh, somewhat like Metallica, I guess you know harder songs. But uh, so when that whole scene is kind of coming to an end, and Nelson had a good run, what's going through your head? Like, what do I want to do now? I mean, in terms of what kind of style of music do you want to do? You want to get into another band right away, or I mean, what what was the end of Nelson for you? Well. Um, the brothers had this idea for a second record that was kind of a a harder edged concept album. And so we all packed up and moved to Reno, Nevada. And we moved into this residential studio called Granny's house, where I think one of the white snake records was done. And and we all essentially was like a, a Victorian mansion that had a recording studio. So the whole band, we all just moved into this place and we were kind of out of sight, out of mind from the, the label to some degree. And the brothers were kind of free to do their own thing. And it was kind of a, it was a very progressive record. It was heavier. It was cool. There's some good songs on it. When our, when John Claudner, you know, our A&R oh. finally showed up and heard the shit, he's like, what the fuck is this? This isn't a Nelson record. This, you know, so ultimately, long story short, a year and a half plus years later, the record was shelved. And they basically we were told either you do the record that we want you to do, or this is basically the end of it. So that record would be shelved, and and some version of it would would be released a couple years later on an indie label. But by the time we went back to the drawing board, at that point, you know the Nirvana thing, all that stuff was starting to happen. So Claudner said, you know, unless you guys become like the new Eagles, going that direction, there's no career. So the, the, the official second record that ended up coming out a couple years later, I think like in 1994, was a whole other thing. You know, it was like this kind of, you know, watered down version of what we began to work with on our, what we thought was going to be our second record. And by the time the record came up, I mean, you know, we were, all the guys in the band were doing other things. The record, all of our allies at the label were gone. It was just kind of thrown out there. Didn't really do much. It was called uh, Because They Can was the name of the record. Um, uh, and, and so there wasn't even like a tour opportunity. There wasn't any real, pro- it was just, it was like a token release and that was pretty much the end of it. So there wasn't ever like a definitive end of Nelson. There wasn't a time right. when the band broke up. We just kind of rode off into the sunset. I mean, how crazy or intimidating is it to have John Kaladner, who's like one of the most legendary A&R men ever. I mean, Boston and, right, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, basically uh, revitalized, uh, I guess you'd say, along with Desmond Child, uh, Aerosmith, Aerosmith yeah. uh, to have him be that blunt with you. It, I mean, at, by that point, 
I was kind of into other things. I, like I wasn't at that meeting, <laughs> you know. Um, what were you into? You know, I I always was drawn to like the drummer's drummer type thing. Like back in high school, like like anytime like a drummer would do his own record, or like the great jazz drummer Buddy Rich, you know, like like these were the guys. This, this was a lot of my original aspiration to kind of, uh, I always wanted to head in that direction as well as do the rock stuff, you know. So, like, I started doing, uh, even even like in, you know, 89, 90, I started doing uh, here and there as kind of like a side project, some of my own drumming-oriented instrumental kind of stuff as well as a lot more drum seminar stuff, drum clinic stuff. And I loved all of that because I could go in, I could, you know, do all this crazy shit. I wasn't only just keeping a, a groove or whatever. I, I could really be adventurous and more creative and all that. So I'd, I'd kind of been developing that all along. You know, I, I would do between like the, after the first Nelson, before the first Nelson tour, I did a club tour of, of, of my own stuff. Uh, I started doing some recording. So anyway, by the time 94 rolled around, I, I kind of eased off into that. I spent the better part of the rest of the 90s immersed in that world you know right. I, mean, I would do records and all that but i did some of my own solo records i would tour every year i bought an rv and traveled in it i had this big ass drum kit i would travel around in so it was like a kind of like a second career that i embarked on so by the time you know the nelson record came out i was already sort of immersed in this other world as well now if the record would have hit and all that who knows i probably would have jumped on board or what have you but at that point i kind of had my own thing going on then you know well, the funny thing I find, you know, is like, and I've had some people on this podcast, Stephen Piercy from Rat, uh, Joey from Warrant, uh, Fred Corey, who, oh, cool. yeah. uh, he had a Vinnie Vincent story as well. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> they if, all do, man. I can tell you. <laughs> um, you know, they all, some blame grunge, uh, some don't. Stephen Piercy said the era killed itself. Like Nirvana had nothing to do with it. It's like the copycat bands. Uh, you know, you had Rat copycat bands, and then those bands had copycat bands. Right, you know? right, right. You had a band like Cinderella, and then you had Britney Fox, and right. then you had a, a band trying to sound like Britney Fox. And uh, but I think the same thing happened to grunge around that time. You had the boy bands kind of take them out, and and which is funny to me that yeah. I always thought boy bands were very hair metal like like the backstreet boys uh had very poppy uh you know kind of like diane warren right you know holly knight desmond child like songs did you ever think of were you ever offered a gig and not a boy band but to be in like the, the musician part of a boy band like it, it never came up for me you know that that was that was a particular click uh usually you'd have like a musical director who would put the bands together for that kind of thing and i I, I was just never really, I, I was probably, you know, again, right after the Nelson thing, I, I was I was on the road so much in, throughout the 90s doing my own thing. There's probably a lot of professional opportunities like that that I just missed out on from doing my, right. my own thing, being gone and all that, you know. Um, it's interesting, though, to sort of contemplate and reflect on what happened because, I, I, I you know, it's hard to say. I mean, look, it, the pendulum is always going to swing the other way. That, that's something that will always, as far as it goes in one direction, it is always going to sort of correct itself and go back in the other direction. 
And by the time we got to 91, 92, like it had just all been done in, in the glam world. And like you said, the derivative bands and all that. I mean, where was it really going to go from then except for the exact opposite? Right. I mean, and, and that's kind of like what happens, I think, when you look at any kind of pop culture. It goes, you know, totally far this way. And then when the new generation of kids come up, they want to do the opposite of what their older brother was doing or they want to do the opposite, find their identity in something different than what their older sister was listening to. So now the opposite, I mean, how much more opposite could Nirvana be from everything we were doing? You know, those that scene, those bands, I mean, it's kind of scary. My only thing is, you know, that I just wonder is, you know, what what happened to, like, to, to like, let's just say, the miscellaneous kid that was at a a, a Nelson show in, in 1991, and you know she's 16 and she likes th these kind of bands and all that. At 18, is she is she now at a Nirvana show? Like, well, like what? You know what I mean? Right. Like, like to, to the fans of those music, did the fans flip also, or what? You know, it, it's a, it's a weird thing to think about because people who really love that the kind of thing we are doing, would they have a taste for that all that Seattle shit? I didn't. I know. That's what I mean. Like, where and where did those fans come from, and where did the the hair metal fans, if you will, where did they go? You know, it's a it's a weird thing uh, to kind of try to examine. You know, in pop culture, where do the fan, where you know, how how does that transition really happen? You know. But then the same thing happened to the boy bands. Like I uh, went to see the Backstreet Boys at the uh, my girlfriend at the time was working for them at the Allstate Arena in Chicago. Right. And. Uh, it was mind blowing. It was it's one of the best. It reminded me of being back in the '80s glam show. It was just the matching outfits, the choreographed dance moves. Right, a great right. band. Right, right. I, I don't know who any of them were, but <laughs> you know they were kind of. I felt bad for them because they were kind of in the back of the stage. Sure. Uh, but you know, then boy bands kind of like. You know, you had uh, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, uh, I think uh, O Town, a couple others. Sure. I'm out of my element talking about boy <laughs> bands. And then, you know, different music came in and overtook them. And Right. But I, I find that the 80s, and you're more than just an 80s drummer, uh, they always seem to come back. Like, it's such a fun era. And, and just, I mean, do you like, some people don't like being associated with the 80s. You know, uh, but God, it was a great era. I'm cool, you know. I I understand it, you know. I uh, I from my perspective, when you think about it, I mean that was you know the last thirty thirty five years of doing this uh, professionally. I guess thirty five years now. You know that was just a, to me that was a, just a slice of a bigger picture thing. Right. But I understand. How, you know, I call it Jack Tripper syndrome. You know, like everybody knows John Ritter for all those years as the guy who was in Three's Company, the guy who was in Three's Company, the guy who was in Three's Company. And this motherfucker was a talented guy. He did all, he did indie films, he did oh, sure. plays, he did all these different kind of things. But he was always the guy from Three's Company until I think right before he passed, he had that popular TV show, Eight Simple Ways. or no, Right, right, right. So it's Jim, Simple Ways, uh, uh, Jim, something with Jim in it. Uh, something like that, right? But And then it was kind of a reinvention. Right. But but so but the thing is, is you know, that's what other people would, would recognize him as. So so in my case, I you know, even to this day, and, and you know, with all the, the gigs I've been doing with Lita Ford lately, you know, I, I understand we're, we're playing for that audience. We're playing for an audience... You know, in that in that forty plus age range, 
uh, uh, 50 plus age range who are, you know, they're, they're taking a night out to go to the casino to, to take a little walk down memory lane and listen to the big Lita Ford hits and so forth. And they'll, and a lot of them will recognize me as, Oh yeah, you play with Vinny. Oh yeah. You play with Nell, you know, the, the old fan. And I, so I, I'm cool with that. I recognize that I was kind of a, a, a part of a scene that was very important to a lot of people back then, you know, it was like you said, uh, Earlier, and I know you got to get going. I mean, I could talk to you for hours, man, but uh, I know you probably don't have hours. Uh, I do, being a stand-up comic. <laughs> Comics got a lot of time on their hands. Um, I, I mean, back then, it was, it was just such a... It was back when MTV played videos. Right. So, I mean, now I, I turned on MTV the other day. I literally hadn't been on that channel in two years, and it's all reality shows, and uh, 16, and I'm pregnant, Uh you know the uh, Jersey Shore it hasn't been on in a while, but it was like, I mean, a band like the Vinnie Vincent Vin Slaughter certainly. I, I thought MTV, I don't want to say made you guys, but uh, sure. I mean that was a, that was a huge out. I mean to have a video on MTV and remember they used to have that the top ten most requested right. every day. It was a big thing to be on there to be in heavy rotation. To go, you know, uh, guest VJ on Headbangers Ballroom or whatever, you know, that was that was a, a big way that people saw you. You know, I mean, we, we couldn't go anywhere back then, walking through a mall in some city we we're in without being recognized. I mean, that was part of the culture, you know. And I guess for me, what's 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 uh, I guess unfortunate in, in my mind, or, or I guess a little baffling these days, is right now, as we speak. You know, if there's a 10 12 year old kid who is drawn to play the drums for example drawn to play guitar who who do they look to as a modern day drum hero or guitar hero and say i want to do what that guy does i want to be like that guy i want to play where that guy you know like, like you know, the classic like somebody who listened to eddie van halen back in the day and decided to play guitar or whatever there's probably you know tens of thousands of these kids out there that were influenced by him hundreds of thousands uh, you know, you you could you 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 could see Eddie Van Halen. You could listen to him play. You could go to see him live. You know, it, it was a he was someone you'd want to emulate. You know, but nowadays, you know, like some DJ guy. Like not to knock it, but I'm just saying, like, where is where does the inspiration come from? I'm, and I'm saying that rhetorically because I don't really know. You know, I don't think anyone knows. <laughs> That's why I, I get sad. Like when uh, you know, I think when bands like Kiss and uh, you know, Iron Maiden and, and, and bands of that era stopped touring. I don't think Kiss will ever stop touring. I mean, they're <laughs> they're going to be like the Jewish Menudo. Right, right. Switch out guys. Uh, you know, it's like, what what big concerts are going to, like, hey, I want to go on a Friday night, Irvine, well, it's not Irvine Meadows anymore, but whatever it's called. Right, right. And go see, uh, I mean, outside of the Foo Fighters, I, I can't think of, you know, I guess Dave Grohl would be about the only guy kids would be like, I want to be like that guy. Yeah, yeah, I guess that, that he would be an example of someone who's out there playing an instrument, doing his thing, and, and kind of living the life. Because that was a big part of it also is the lifestyle, that whole vibe, you know. It, it's an interesting observation. You know, people will say, well, you know, again, we're, we're, uh, we're asking what happened to the rock fan. You know, cause, like, when, you, when you look at the history of rock and roll, what what are the elements that were always there? Even back from Elvis Presley days, you know, when you think about it, I mean, there was it was always there was always something kind of dangerous about the rock and roll star guys. There was always this bigger than life financial thing. You know, they were all rich or whatever, uh, and there was just there was 
women associated with it, you know, Th those elements, you know, and then, so then when, when everything kind of faded away and, and the Seattle thing came in, the Seattle thing had none of those elements. These guys were not dangerous. They didn't appear to be wealthy and there didn't appear to be any female appeal to what they were doing, like right. groupies or whatever you want to call it, you know, that kind of vibe. So where did that element go? Where, where you know, the, the kid in the Midwest who'd be attracted to those things, like classic, you know, Guns N' Roses or Motley Crue, wow, there's danger, there's women, there's big mansions, wow, I want to do that, left rock and roll and never really returned. Where did it go? Hip-hop. Think about it. Now, when you see a hip-hop video, what is there? They're out in the car at the mansion, they got all these bitches out by the pool swimming, there's a gun, somebody's got a gun, or, you know, danger, Pussy, money is all a part of that culture now. And think about it. That's those guys, and they have the fucked up stage names like Bobby Rock or whatever, you know, Jay-Z, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, that, that's where it all went, <laughs> kind of like. Right, and no. I don't think it's left there. I, I don't know that, aside from, you know, Marilyn Manson or a few other select uh, 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 characters through the years uh, since then, think about it that's almost all where that went and what's the most popular music of the day now is that because that those that kind of took over the fundamental elements that rock and roll always had you know well no, it's not popular in my house i'll tell you that much <laughs> i mean i think i was the only guy who bought venny's last uh cd and uh boy, <laughs> he did a brilliant move i'll give him this uh his last release a couple of years ago it's a 71 minute uh album and you couldn't fast forward you had to listen to the whole thing. Like if you hit forward to go to the next track, it went right to the end. So he basically forced you to either listen to the whole album or you listen to none of it. This is Vinny's record? Yeah, he, I think it was called, uh, not you, uh, Guitarmageddon or something oh, like that. Oh, oh. uh, so uh, I appreciated the, uh, you know, the thought process, if you want to call it that, of like, you want to listen to my music? You're going to listen <laughs> to the whole album or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, playing with Lita Ford, which you're doing now, among other things, right? Uh, is it hard for an artist like Lita, uh, you know, to put out new music because people go to a Lita Ford concert, they want to hear "Close My Eyes," right? Uh, obviously, "Kiss Me Deadly," right? And, and you know, maybe a couple runaway songs, uh, and she had a lot of hits. Is it like? Why even bother do new material? Like put out a new album? I, I would I would agree that, you know, the majority of the fans wanna go there and take a walk down memory lane and listen to the the big hits and all that. that. That's the case for almost any of those bands. Look at the Stones, look at Aerosmith. I mean, they could put out a, a most brilliant new record, but when you go to one of those shows, what are the tunes you want to hear? All the the, the big hits. So I, I think you do a new record. Uh, I think she would do a new record because she wanted to do a new record. You know, I mean, she did release one uh, called "Living Like a Runaway" a, a couple years ago. I think it was a, a, a solid record. Uh, we're in the process right now of putting tunes together for another record, so we're going to go in and probably record early next year uh, just to do another one. Now, you know, these days there's no real industry. There's no like big record company advance. There's no oh, let's go out and try to sell a couple hundred thousand. It, so it, it's just, I think you do it because as a musician or as a player, you got to do it, you know, um, to, to ask a musician to stop coming up with new riffs or new lyrics or new whatever is, it's just part of what we're going to do. And, you know, it's, uh, there, there is a market for it. I mean, I think some of the, the hardcore fans will still will be interested in the new stuff. We always include a few new songs in the set. 
that kind of thing. Uh, and I think you just have to do it because you feel like doing it. You feel like you need to have a little bit of that forward motion happening also, you know? Because I just don't, like, nothing against Taylor Swift, uh, but it's like she sells, you know, five, six million copies of a record and and, and you see a, a band from, you know, our favorite genre, not like, I think Rat's last album, which I thought was really good, uh, 50,000. Right. And that, that that's that, those are good numbers these days. It's insane. I mean, is that frustrating for, like, I guess what I'm trying to get out of it is, like, the mood in the studio recording the album is like, like, let's put out the best record we can. But does it ever enter into everyone's head? This might not sell a lot. I I mean, at this stage of the game, I don't even know if you're thinking about uh, sales, sales, and all that because it's just the, the, the again the whole model has shifted. And right now, you know, as we speak, everyone's still trying to figure out you know, how, how you earn a living as a musician these days because the, the recording industry and the, all, this, all the derivative thing, you know, publishing and all that, that was always, you know, publishing was like a musician's retirement fund. You know, when you, when you do, when you, you know, you record a record back in the 80s or back in the 70s or whatever, you would know that for the, if you were a songwriter, for the rest of your life, there's going to be some, you know, a couple times a year, you're going to get a check and it's going to, it, it may not be a lot eventually, or it may, or it may be, it may surprise you how much it is, but nonetheless, the residual income as part of your publishing was kind of like, you know, again, the musician's retirement fund that doesn't really exist anymore, you know, and the idea of getting a record company advance and having the tour support and all the things that a label would do as part of that model it was all part of how you, you know, put food in the refrigerator and, you know, how it's part of the, the business model of doing what we do. It's all shifting right now and, and, and where it lands, no one's really going to know. So I would say at this point to do a record is, is a, is a creative venture. It's something that, a, that you would do because you feel like you have something to say. You got some new material. Alita is a, is a creative person. She's someone who's forward thinking as far as, you know, she hears things, she has different riffs uh, she doesn't mind playing this stuff, obviously, but I think she, I think it would be very stifling for someone like her to just go out and just do nothing right. but the old stuff. I think she has to continue to, to create stuff. Right. Well, you know, I recently saw a band called Bowling for Soup. Yeah. Uh, I think they're out of the yeah. Austin area. I love them. I like, you know, they're like, to me, this generation's cheap trick. Like, they should be bigger, but for whatever reason, they aren't. And uh, they started doing some new songs in their concert. Like, Hey guys, this is what we call bathroom break time. So you guys right. can, yeah. I thought that was a humorous take right, on, right, right, uh, right. you know, at least these guys have a sense of humor about it. Um, but I must before I let you go. First of all, where can I uh, BobbyRock.com? Yeah, that's the best place for everything. Yeah. And uh, iTunes uh, can people? I know you have one album that I literally bought. Has you sat down on the couch, body of work. Where can people buy your albums? Yeah, uh, videos, uh, and you have books. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, BobbyRock.com is the best place. There's a merch or merchandise button there. Uh, they can buy any of the records, or I, I think there's some package offerings on there. Some of my books are on there, that kind of thing. So yeah, that's probably the best place to get the overview. You know, and on iTunes for what? Sure, I iTunes think would the have one stuff. album. There, I, there are three records, three solo okay. albums that are out there. Uh, so those are all on iTunes and. Uh, they can and, find it, yeah. And any drum clinics or anything where people could go and, and uh, 
see you. And uh, I mean, what I'm trying to say, fans out there, let's put some money in Bobby's pocket <laughs> because he was nice enough to do this. <laughs> let me let me say this right now. First of all, Bobby said I'll be over at nine o'clock. At eight fifty nine, I get a text. I'm here. It's very rare for you know, I, I won't name names, but <laughs> let's just say some people from uh, uh, you, you, that you've worked with were not as prompt. Uh, <laughs> Bobby didn't have to do this interview. Uh, I, I'm sure he's sick of answering. I tried to come up with some creative questions. Oh, it's all good, man. It's all good. Um, but please support Bobby Rock and buy his albums on iTunes. Uh, uh, I don't know if you get any money from Nitro sales. I don't know. <laughs> don't buy the Nitro records. No. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, 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 I want to end an interview on a fun note. Uh, you're first of all, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, Thank you, bro. No, I mean it, it's an honor to talk to you, and uh, you know, I've been a fan from from day one of, of seeing that boys are gonna rock video. It took me a half hour to figure out if you guys were girls or guys, right? But, uh, right. <laughs> Any wacky stories, antidotes about your time in Nitro? Because you seem to have a penchant for uh, over-the-top guitar players, right? Right. Working right. with them, right? I mean, uh, Jim and vocalist. I mean, uh, Robert right. Fleischman, Mark Slaughter. I mean, I wouldn't say Lita Ford's a wacky vocalist. She's more uh, normal, right? Uh, but uh, Jim Gillette could break glass, right? 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 Michelangelo. Four net guitars. Uh, did you think you'd seen it all with Vinny, and then walked into a Nitro recording session? And goes, oh, right, exactly, and, and that's a perfect example of just how far the envelope would continue to get pushed uh, as as a result of you know the, the natural evolution through that time. You know, the thing about Nitro that many people probably don't know is that you know I never really officially joined the band. Uh, you know, Michael and Jay, this was this was one of these things after the the Vinnie Vincent thing, uh, one of these projects that found me. Uh, they wanted me to to do the record, and initially it was like, just come. You know, uh, uh, I know you got different things going on. We'd just love for you to play on the record. You know, so initially it was just like a session that I was going to do. So we they had some demos. I learned the tunes. I went out there. I did the record in I think maybe two, over a two day period. I, I tracked to Michael's guitar tracks. Uh, uh, so Jim wasn't even singing uh, in the. I, I heard his voice on the demos and all that, but it was just the, the recording of it was just basically by just getting drums down on tape so they could do all the overdubs, and that was it. Great job, thank you very much. Best of luck, and that kind of thing. And then uh, when they finished the record and it was time to put the band together, from what they were telling me is they they couldn't really find anybody to play the the drum tracks, you know, because this was one of the rare records. And, it, and, and again, even compared to like a Vinnie Vincent session, usually it's play less. You know what I mean? Do less. Don't do, simplify that fill. Simplify the kick drum part. Don't do a double bass thing. You know, that's generally what would happen in a recording session. With the Nitro record, it was the opposite. Do more. Play that twice as long. Do something twice as fast there. Like they wanted the most over the top, the craziest, you know. So it was refreshing. I mean, I, even the president of their label came down and was like encouraging me. Oh, yeah, I like how you did that film, but could you, could you double it and then play something twice as fast? As the, I mean, it was like, am I, in a dream, am I dreaming here, you know? So it was a, it was a fun record to play. They had trouble finding somebody to come in and, and, and do the track. So they said, listen, for right now, because we can't find a permanent member, can you just do a, the photo session with us for the record? I went, guys, man, I, I really can't because if I do it, everybody's going to think I joined the, the band, your band, and I'm in the middle now of doing some other things, so it probably wouldn't be a good idea. 
So then the label guy, the president guy calls, please, man, what can we do? Let's, you know, we just need you to do the, the session with us. And so I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll do the, the, the photo session with you guys, but I just make a note in the liner notes that I'm a special guest uh, that I'm not officially in the band and I'm going to look a little incognito. That's what I thought. So I let some stubble go yeah. out. I wore sunglasses. So I, my thinking was if somebody saw that on the record, is that Bobby Rock? When they went to go look my name up, they'd go, oh, it is, but he's special guest or whatever. Little did I know, and it wasn't, they didn't do anything, you know, wrong. We just didn't really think about it. it was, they just, like, they went ape shit with the promo on that record. You know, full page ads and Rolling Stone, and they had all these posters and uh, ads all over the place with just our picture on there, you know, not special guests. That's on the liner notes, you know. Right. So next thing you know, everybody thinks that I'm in Nitro now, you know. And so that was kind of like the uh, the, the beginning of, of my uh, sort of forever in the in the in the history books being <laughs> officially part of the band, you know. And there's, I have no issue with it. I mean, it was a they're, they're cool guys. It was a fun record to do. I ended up doing one of Michael's solo records uh, a few years back, which was a lot of fun. And yeah, it was it was just and Michael in particular just way over the top with all that crazy playing and all that, you know. Um, but I have, you know, all good memories from it. It was a lot of fun. And, and there's some diehards out there. Even to this day, people will show up, you know, to shows I'm playing with the vinyl or something right. for me to sign, you know. Well, I so, mean, my uh, probably, I have two favorite national anthems at a hockey game I've ever seen. The first one was Wayne Gretzky's first game as a king was Roy Orbison. <laughs> and it was just the most amazing visual. He's in all black. And it's against the ice. And it was stunning. And then... Uh, a couple of years ago at Staples Center, Michelangelo. And I think we had just invaded a country. And so the, the <laughs> mood was a little, uh, not somber, but, uh, right, like, right, you right. know, I think a more straight version of the anthem would have been uh, <laughs> maybe appropriate. And right. he comes out, leather jacket, four-neck guitar, double-tapping, triple-tapping in the audience. It's like, what the hell's going on here? But, uh, you know, Bobby, it, it's I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, you are uh, an icon in the world of drumming and you know I, I just thank you for sharing your Vinny stories because I know it's you know 30 years in the making and uh, you know please guys go on iTunes <laughs> buy Out of Body I think I call it Body of Work my, my mistake don't go buy Body of Work because it's uh, probably a George Lynch solo album oh whenever you said that I thought you were referring to my Body of Work right well, yeah. well, I, well technically I was right I am referring <laughs> buy Bobby's Body of Work on iTunes which would include the album Out of Body and uh, his other two albums and uh, you get any money from Vinny uh, the first two Invasions uh, album sales I, I don't they, I wasn't a writer on any of the stuff so I don't want to pry too yeah, deep yeah, into the yeah, finances yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, support Bobby in whatever way you can. Go on bobbyrock.com. Uh, Twitter, do you do Twitter? Yeah, yeah. I think it's Bobby Rock Live. Okay, uh, and Twitter. Instagram as well? Same thing, yep. So please yep. follow Bobby on Twitter uh, and Instagram. He's He didn't have to do this, and uh, it's hotter. It's like Africa in my condo right now. So uh, <laughs> he's probably sweating more in my house right now than he did those first recording sessions with Benny <laughs> and uh, inappropriate Earl. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud rate and review us support Bobby rock. And uh, I don't know how I'm going to top this interview uh, other than Benny. We're not topping this. So uh, thank you guys very much and we'll see you soon. Been a break.